One hundred page. Yes. No, it's not. I mean, if you're only reading the Dante, um, it's really not that long. Unfortunately, you have no idea what's going on. But it's not that long, which you have no idea about. Um, okay, I wanted us to keep looking at um, some of the translations. How are we doing with Paradiso? Are you finding it? How are you finding it? Different? More yeah. confusing. More confusing. Yeah, it's really, it's really different. I am. Um, I think I like Purgatorio better. Okay. Um, Max. Oh, I was just saying it's heavenly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? A well-picked word. <laughs> and it's inferno hellish. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> All right, and purgatorio is just you know kind of good for you. Um, okay, um, is anyone liking it best? You? <laughs> me? Oh, me totally. Yeah. No, to be absolutely. fair, we're not done with it, so it gets weirder. Um, well, crap. <laughs> it gets so much weirder. You have no idea. Yeah, th th this um, is more like Dante in Wonderland than Dante in Heaven. Um, yeah, well, it gets a lot weirder. Yeah, the heaven part, in a way, is the end of the purgatorio. Um, that's the part that sort of corresponds to some expected idea of heaven that we might have had. Um, but by the time we get to Paradiso, uh, we're in a whole other world. And um, it's no one likes it the first time they read it. But um, it kind of grows on you, and after a while you think, boy, that was really, that was one of the weirdest things I ever read. I have to go back to it. <laughs> and then you do go back to it, and it just becomes a more and more amazing thing to think that he just spun this out of nowhere. Um, yeah? I, uh, I was going to ask, there's no real religious background in the heavens on different planets, is there? Well, there, it's Plato, actually. Oh, okay. um, so the idea is, it, all right, <laughs> I'll just give a, let me give a, um, a quick sense of some of the stuff that Dante is pulling together. Um, but I do want us to look back at the Eliot and also at the Shelley to, get, to give a sense of things, um, to give a sense of what Dante might sound like um, as poetry rather than in translation ease. Um, and translation ease is important because um, we talked about this a little bit in Lattimore, but there are two things that, that what we call translation ease gives you that, um, that better translations lose. Um, one is accuracy. Um, that is, you get much more scrupulous fidelity to the original and much less reinterpretation of the original if you're just being accurate even when um, that accuracy leads to awkwardness or opacity or difficulty. The other is that you remember that you're reading a translation which in certain kinds of work, it's really important to always remember this. Um, when you're reading, you know, uh, um, Stieg Larsson, for example, um, you just get caught up in the story, and the fact that it's a translation doesn't really matter because it's the story that matters. Um, but with Dante, there's a certain kind of precision in Dante's own language, and in Homer's, and in Virgil's. There's a precision in their language that the attempted precision of translation reminds you is there, although it doesn't convey. Um, and just the reminder that there's something um, more that it's worthwhile um, planning eventually to know. Um, that's a whole lot of what reading literature is about, so I'll just make a very broad statement. A whole lot of what reading real literature is about, great literature, is about is thinking about the next time you'll read it. That is, you don't have to get it all the first time. You don't have to get it all the tenth time. But as you're reading something, um, ideally the experience will be like the experience of being in love with someone, which is, this is really great. Um, I'm looking forward to the future. You're not living in the present. You're looking forward to the future. It's like um, when you're on a date with someone and you spend the whole time worrying about whether they'll give you another date. Um, and you're not just enjoying the date as it is, but what can make you enjoy it is your sense that um, there'll be another one later and it will continue. So that kind of um, um, attitude towards the future um, of your experience of something, um, that attitude towards future experience um, and not living in the present when you're reading something or when you're with a person, 
um, that's um, something that great literature will give you. And that, of course, in a way, is what the very theme of the Divine Comedy is. That is, Dante in this life is thinking through the afterlife. And um, what he's doing is he's essentially saying, both as um, the character in the poem and then as Dante, the real biographical person, what he's saying is, I had this amazing experience, which I'm now going to tell you about, even though that's a hugely difficult work that I'm about to undertake. Um, that is these hundred cantos in Terza Rima. So every line in Dante, and this is part of the structure of Terza Rima, um, Dante's a little bit like, you know how fractals are self-similar? Do people know about Mandelbrot sets and things like that? No? Mm -hmm. Sort of. Okay, so the idea in a Mandelbrot set is you look at that kind of horseshoe crab shape, and at the places where it's, where it's turbulent, if you expand those places, you see more horseshoe crabs, and if you expand those places, you see more horseshoe crabs, and it's horseshoe crabs all the way down to um, the end of space and time. Um, where there's still more horseshoe crabs. Where there's still more horseshoe crabs waiting. To pounce, um, so that the, that's called self-similarity, and the idea actually goes back to Leibniz. Um, the idea that every um, bit of the universe um, actually—it's what Leibniz calls a monad—contains within it the structure of the entire universe. That if you look at any monad, um, you can see um, the whole universe within that monad. Um, the universe is made up of monads, each of which is structured like the universe itself. Whether this is true in reality, which it probably isn't, well, there's a way in which it may be. But whether this is true in reality, um, it's certainly true about, about um, highly patterned great works of literature, where you should be able to quote William Blake. Well, you should always be able to quote William Blake. Where, to quote William Blake, you should be able to see um, eternity in an hour and to see the universe in a grain of sand. Um, and so the idea is that if you look at any part of Dante's important thinking about the structure, the content, the interrelationships of parts of his poem, um, they are all versions of what he's trying, of his, of his biggest theme. So the terza rima, that is simply the rhyme scheme of the poem, is always a future-oriented rhyme scheme because the middle line of every stanza says you have to keep going. You can't stop here. This, stanza, this line will not be rhymed by anything unless you go forward to the next stanza, which then again will have an unrhymed middle line within it. And the only place to go for the rhyme of that middle line is in the next stanza. So the very idea, this, this new rhyme scheme that Dante came up with, Terza Rima, complex, beautiful, um, a kind of dance of words and meanings, is also always forwardly propulsive. Now that rhyme scheme, to go back to um, this question of um, the different levels of heaven, um, that rhyme scheme is in a very tiny miniature, um, an illustration of what Plato says in his wacky dialogue, the Timaeus, his wacky late dialogue, the Timaeus. Late because it's not Socrates who says things, it's Timaeus himself who says things. So in the Timaeus, um, which Beatrice says, well, um, the Timaeus is really important, but don't be too quick to think you understand what it says, she says to Dante mm -hmm. in Paradiso. Um, in the Timaeus, Plato has one of the, his most famous lines, which is his definition of time. Um, and what he, his definition of time is, time is the moving image of eternity. So time is, cre is a created thing, created by the god whom Plato calls the Demiurge, um, and um, that demiurge, that creator, produces in matter, not in the world of forms, but in the world of matter, the world we live in, um, produces an image. And remember, images are very important to Plato as images of the forms themselves. Um, produces an image of eternity. Eternity is timeless, whereas time is motion. And so what, what Plato, or what Timaeus in Plato, speaking for Plato, says is that the Demiurge, or let's just say God, 
created the stars in order to give us an image of time. The reason the stars exist, and again, recollect that they did not know until the 18th century that the stars were suns. So the stars are heavenly um, lights that are obviously much bigger than they seem to be, um, but no one thinks that they're as big as the sun or the moon. Um, they are like the planets that is bright, some bright, some dim, all in the sky. And Timaeus is figuring out why the planets, people know that planets, the planets are the wanderers in heaven. Is this a, a do you need to know this little bit of astronomy? Um, the way you can tell something is a planet and not a star, if you look at the sky, is that you can't unless you look at the sky for several nights in a row. And what you will see if you look at the sky for several nights in a row is that some of the lights in the sky will move against the background, won't be parts of constellations. Um, some of the lights in the sky will sometimes be near one star or near one group of stars and sometimes near another group of stars. And um, the fixed stars, the constellations, will rise later and later every night as the Earth goes around the sun. But the planets will sometimes start will rise later and later, and then suddenly they'll start rising earlier and earlier. This is called retrograde motion. Does anyone know about this? So the so the word planet is from a Greek word meaning wander, wanderer, and the the reason is the planets wander against the background of the night sky. Um, you can always tell if you're in the northern hemisphere. You can always find the Big Dipper. The Big Dipper is always <coughs> visible in the northern hemisphere. Um, sometimes you will see a planet against the Big Dipper, Venus or Mars. Um, they didn't know that the morning star and the evening star were the same, by the way. But Venus is the morning star, Venus is the evening star, Mars, Jupiter. Um, those, uh, um, those are highly visible planets. Sometimes you'll see them near the Big Dipper, sometimes you'll see them far away. Sometimes they'll approach the Big Dipper day after day after day, and then suddenly they'll start going back um, from the way, they were, the way they were heading towards the Big Dipper. Yeah. I'm just curious if um, if you think maybe the, did the, the Soviets had this in mind when they called the first satellite companions. We have something that stays close to us and wanderers that is not related at all. I don't know. That's a that's an interesting question. I and the answer is I don't know. Um, the uh, American names for space flights were some of them were named after planets and some after constellations, um, and then some after gods, of course, like Apollo. Um, but Mercury, um, I guess Mercury was both a planet and a god, which were the first space flights, and then Apollo is only the god, and then Gemini is the constellation. So it's, um, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, so Dante seems to refer to planets as stars. Why is that? Yeah, because stars means for Dante heavenly bodies. Okay, we have a technical meaning of stars. Mm -hmm. And by stars, we mean the fixed stars the so-called fixed stars, that is the stars that make up the constellations, which also we now know have discovered means that they're suns. Um, what star means for Dante is simply a heavenly body. Um, the sun, the moon, um, and other stars, so that the very last line of Paradiso is um, all you really need to know to know what Dante's... Um, um, uh, oh, that's stupid. All you need to know to know that um, what Dante thinks a star is, the last line is the love that moves the sun and the other stars. Um, they throw in an all that they shouldn't. I don't know why. But at any rate, it's the, the famous last line of the whole Divine Comedy is the love which moves the sun and the other stars. What do you have? Do you have Mandelbaum? Yeah. And what do you have? By the love that moves the sun and the other stars. Yeah, so that's right. Um, so the sun is a star. Um, okay, well, we knew the sun was a star. Sorry, that didn't help. Um, the sun is a star, but not, for the, not because stars are suns, but because the sun, like any other heavenly body, is a star for Dante. Yeah. Maybe they just inserted that all because it sounds better in English. It's a yeah. lot more rhythmic to say the love that moves the sun and all the other stars than the loves that move the sun and the other stars. Yeah, I'm sure they did, but it's not accurate. So, so I object. Um, I'm sure that will make a lot of difference, but mm -hmm. still, yeah.
Can you make the case just ten minutes ago that the better translations are not accurate? No. No, I said the better translations are are accurate. What I want to give you is Shelley and um, and a little bit more of Eliot to give you a sense of what it might sound like um, as great poetry in a language you knew. Um, but the thing about translation ease is that it um, it the two things that I said is that it gives you accuracy while always reminding you that that accuracy comes at, at a cost of immediacy and that you have to understand that, that the real poem is elsewhere, just as for Dante, the future is elsewhere, just as, um, you know, the, the best possible outcome, besides your, the salvation of your souls, um, but the best possible outcome that I can imagine for your reading the Divine Comedy is you decide to learn Italian and read it in Italian. Um, and, you know, Joyce and Beckett did. Um, the way they learned Italian was they wanted to read Dante, a lot of people learned Italian, who, for whom Italian was not a native language, just in order to read Dante. Um, and that's because they first knew him in English and knew that there, they could feel that there was more there. Um, and they got to what was more. The first, did I quote this for you? The first sentence in, I think I did, the first sentence in Beckett's first complete book, um, it was, yeah, um, it was morning and Balacqua was stuck in the first of the canty of the moon. Um, and you can see why now that you've started Paradiso. All that stuff about the theory of light that you get um, that Beatrice uh, gives Dante about what the dark, what the seas in the moon are, what the dark parts of the moon are. Okay, yeah. Could, could we quickly talk about that theory? I found it really hard to... Yeah. Okay, in a minute? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's so, so interesting that you want to talk about false science. But okay. Um, no, it's, it's, it's actually interesting as history of science. That is, Dante is not negligible in the history of science. Um, because what you can see is what the problems were that 12th and 13th century scientists and 14th century scientists were trying to solve and um, what uh, seemed consistent with their knowledge by way of solution. Yeah. Actually, I've read a bit about like the, the formation of Dante's heaven, and it's it, apparently it, a lot of scientists drew inspiration for it when they were coming up with the concept of the three-sphere. Mm -hmm. which is something I look, took one look at and said, I don't understand this at all, but it's still really cool. Yeah. Okay, well, let me just <laughs> finish off. So the idea of Terzarima is that it's always sending you elsewhere. Um, the idea of the poem as a poem is that Dante is saying, um, I had an experience which I am now setting myself to remember. So um, I, Dante, the person who actually did this, that is the character in the poem, sometimes called the pilgrim, but I don't like that language. Um, the character in the poem says, I am now going to sit down and remember what happened to me and go over it again in my mind. So that that idea of going over something again in your mind, again, you know, the, your, your most vivid um, real-life experience of this is um, having, you know, an amazing time with someone, and as you're having that time, thinking about the fact that you're going to remember it, um, looking forward to remembering it, seeing it as something that you want to remember. Even as you're experiencing it, you're experiencing it not only in the present, but also in a future that will look back to this as the past. Um, you could say in a future perfect mode, if you know what, what that means grammatically. Um, that, that amazing present tense experiences, especially experiences of love, will often be experienced also in the future perfect. I will look back on this with um, amazement and joy. This is so amazing that I will be amazed when I remember what is happening now. There's that great Dorothy Fields song, Jerome Kern Dorothy Fields song, The Way You Look Tonight, um, which some of you may know is a quite an amazing song. That's what that song is about. Billie um, Holiday did a better version. Sorry? Billie Holiday did a better version. Well, they wrote it. Oh. Jerome Kern, Jerome Kern wrote the music and Dorothy Fields wrote the words. No, I'm saying Billie Holiday. Yeah. Oh, a different song? What song? No, no, the same song, better version. Then who? Then them. They wrote it. She couldn't do a better version. 
They didn't I sing it. They wrote it. it. Oh, they wrote it for her because I didn't know. Who no, was no, the no, no. They, no, they wrote it. They wrote. Yeah, Fred Astaire Fred has two versions of it, and the second version, um, which is ten years after the first, is incredible. Um, that is, the second version is kind of an illustration of what the first version predicted. But we don't need to go there. But the point is, so he did this song. It was one of the songs that made him famous. The way you look tonight. It's in. Um, it's in. What's it in? Is that Lady in Red? Is that no, I think no, it's in no, Swing Time. I think it's in Swing Time. Um, at any rate, then, ten years later, um, Fred Astaire did a bunch of... I can't believe we're going into this, but it's <laughs> totally great. Um, look, if, if the result of this class is you listen to Fred Astaire singing, um, that's great. He did, he did a bunch of his famous songs with Oscar Peterson, including The Way You Look Tonight. And that, that performance in the early 50s, 10 or 15 years after his first recordings of these songs um, is astonishing. Um, it's a, a, astonishingly different and great. But part of what's going on is you're reminded of his earlier version, and this is the future that he meant then. He's remembering what it was like to sing it the first time he sang it. At least that's the interpretation of it. Okay. Um, so Fred Astaire and Dante, of course they go together, um, because everything goes with Dante. Um, so, but the idea then is that Dante is sitting down to, and, and um, as a character, he is planning to remember and to record his memories of what happened. And sometimes he fails, and that's an issue in Paradiso, how much of it he can remember when he sits down to write it. Um, sometimes, often, mostly he succeeds. Um, but also Dante, we are aware that Dante, the poet, not Dante the character, is sitting down planning to work this poem out. He's doing the kind of writing that Milton and um, probably Homer and certainly Virgil also do, which is um, something that great, it's an experience great writers can have, which is they write in order to see what it is that they will write. That is, if you knew it in advance, then you could just speak it. It wouldn't be labor to write. It wouldn't be work to write. But the, but the reason to write is to see what it is that you will have written. The writing is itself a discovery. Writing isn't simply a disclosure of what's already within you, at least not literature, but writing is an exploration of what may be in you, but obscurely. So again, it takes the form of a past tense claim, here's what happened to me, but it's actually a future tense set, let me see if I can figure out um, what story I want to have told. So that's, again, future perfect, like the way you look tonight. It's a future perfect sort of thing. So the Terza Rima structure, A, B, A, B, C, B, and the very commitment to writing this poem and to being a character in the poem, they're um, different scale versions of the same onwardness for Plato. That's the moving image of eternity. Eternity is there are these three worlds, and there are these figures who are where they are in these three worlds, and there's God who is at the center and at the end of it all, um, and um, who surrounds it all. Um, and um, that comes from Plato and the idea of eternity itself. Then the demiurge, that is the God of matter, or God insofar as he is material, or God as he manifests himself as a material being, produces motion in order to give us the idea of time, because time is the image of eternity. So we see the fixed stars, but we see the planets wandering among the fixed stars, and preeminently we see the sun and the moon which are the least fixed of the stars, which are always moving against the background of the constellations. That's why the sun may be in Aries, or the sun may be in Gemini, or the sun may be in Aquarius. Um, because the sun and moon are always moving. They give us our idea of time. The sun first, the moon second, the planets, what we now call the planets, Mercury, 
Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, after the Sun and the Moon, um, and then the fixed stars which don't move at all. And so the idea is you have a kind of um, continuum between motion and stillness, Stillness is what is eternal and unchanging, and motion is <coughs> the image, the moving image of what is eternal and unchanging. And the point about the things that move is they always return to where they started from. So that motion being cyclical is itself a kind of um, derivative of eternity, as we calculus um, types say. Um, it's... it's um, uh, if you were to integrate that motion, you would get space instead of time. Let's just put it that way, because that makes it simple. Um, and that's what makes it the moving image of eternity. Now, what Plato says in the Timaeus is the stars are where our souls come from. And that's one of the questions. The stars are actually the substance of our souls. So what it means, he seems to say that what it means to have a soul is to have a little bit of um, star substance within you while you're in a body and then he seems to say it's very obscure in Timaeus but he seems to say and Dante understood him as saying that that star substance returns to the star whence it came um, whichever star it is it returns to the star whence it came that's a little bit how you get um, where the ideas of astrology will come from but one final thing um, <coughs> to, to talk about how this works um, Aquinas and Aristotle have the idea of God as what's called an unmoved mover. So do the Neoplatonists. And the idea is that God is what everything is attracted to. Um, but as we saw at the very center of Purgatorio and at the very center of the Divine Comedy, um, sometimes those attractions go off. You go in the wrong direction. You don't go quite in the right direction. But the idea of God is what everything in the universe is Want, seeks, tries to get to. That eventually became, for Newton, the idea of gravity. That is, the idea of an unmoved mover became in science the idea of gravitational force. That God is the um, center of all attraction, that all things are attracted to him, and that they move towards him the way objects move towards the sun or towards the earth. And what the mystics or what the theologians were seeing is that that motion might in various ways not, might in various ways be deflected so that the very fact that you're attracted towards God might cause you not to go towards him but to orbit him. And that orbit might be more or less eccentric. And that orbit might, in strange ways, take you away from God, as in the very eccentric orbit of comets. Um, so this is not what Dante is thinking, but it is part of an intellectual history um, that Dante knows, that Dante is part of, and that will eventually lead to Newton understanding that the reason the moon circles the earth or orbits the earth is that it is always falling towards the earth. That's the big discovery that Newton made, that the orbits of heavenly bodies are always falling towards the thing that they're orbiting. And that idea starts out as a platonic and theological idea, that there's an unmoved mover which attracts all things to it, but that attraction turns out not to go straight ahead. Um, it turns out that you can be attracted towards God or towards love, or that the force of attraction, which is love, could nevertheless skew so it doesn't get you towards a thing to which you are actually attracted, which is God. And so you will always want to go towards God, even if you're in hell. You will always want to go towards God but your desire to go towards God doesn't guarantee that you'll get there um, because you may be orbiting him farther and farther away. Dante doesn't put it in terms of orbits until we get kind of to Paradiso, but it's interesting to see how all these ideas, from the largest astronomical and theological ideas to the smallest question of the unit of verse in Dante, all harmonize with 
each other. Because the verses also, the terza rima, kind of orbit the middle line. And then the middle line um, itself expands in a kind of perpetually falling forward motion to the next stanza. Um, okay, do you want to look at the canto, Cantos of the Moon? Okay, so what are you confused by? I'm not sure I understand what Dante initially thinks is causing the dark and light spots on the moon versus what yeah. Chris then explains. Okay, so... That was confusing. Canto um, 2, I think. Yeah. Is it Canto 2 or Canto 3? No, you're right, Canto 2. Um, so at... Uh, All right, so let's start um, at line 34. Um, partly because pearls are going to um, be an important image of light in Paradiso. Paradiso, okay, so, so general thing to say is that Paradiso is the book of light. Uh, Purgatorio brings up <coughs> the question of light um, from the start because of the question of Dante's shadow. Um, and whether the light goes through him or not. Um, in Purgatory, it's always sunlight. Um, Paradiso, the sunlight is not the sunlight is not the brightest light we're going to see. But Paradiso is the book of light. Um, Inferno is the book of darkness. Paradiso is the book of light. Um, and um, in the third, for example, um, in Paradiso three. Um, what there's the idea of a pearl on a forehead as what the moon looks like. Um, that is light um, juxtaposed against light. Um, it's, it's utterly luminous, Paradiso, and one of the things that Dante has to do is accustom his eyes to light, which is initially blinding, so that he can see further light. What does that allude to? This idea that you see some light and you can't see it all, but after a while your eyes get used to it? Plato's Cave. Good. Um, so here we are. Um, the Eternal Pearl. Eh, go. It's great. <laughs> uh, uh, 29. Direct your grateful mind to God, says Beatrice, who has conjoined us with the nearest star. It seemed to me that we were in a cloud, shining, dense, solid, and unmarred, like a diamond struck by sunlight. If you have interestingly different translations, flag them. Um, like a diamond struck by sunlight, the eternal pearl received us in itself as water does a ray of light and yet remains unsundered and serene. So the way light can shine into water, um, imagine um, light uh, coming out of water, illuminated, um, luminous with water, um, and yet not pierced by the light that it nevertheless receives. That's what this looks like. If I was there in flesh, on earth we can't conceive how matter may admit another matter to it when body flows into, becomes another body. That all the more should kindle our desire to see the very one who lets us see the way our nature was conjoined with God. So um, the way light enters water so did I, in my very flesh, enter into this sphere. What now we take on faith will then be seen. That is the way our nature is conjoined with God. What now we take on faith will then be seen, not demonstrated, but made manifest, like a priori truths which we accept. Um, yeah, first truths... Um, which which um, we believe. What do you guys have for that? Line uh, 45? Yeah, so like um, primal truths. Yeah, um, th axioms in geometry um, is what he means. That is stuff that we see as immediately true um, that, do that doesn't have to be proved, um, but we that we use to prove other things. I replied, my lady... With absolute devotion, oh. what? I was in the wrong place. Uh, page 37 in the Hollanders. 
I replied, My lady, with absolute devotion, I offer thanks to him who has removed me. Yeah. What? Page 41, your version is different oh. from ours. How weird. Okay. Hardcover. Yeah, but you would think they would use the same plates. Computers. Um, <coughs> okay, like every truth which we accept, I replied, My lady, with absolute devotion, I offer thanks to him who has removed me from the world of death. And then the world of death would be the world where matter doesn't inter interpenetrate itself. Um, yeah. Oh, just um, in the man of honor, instead of, um, sorry, it said the, the world of death in there? Yeah. Um, it just says um, the mortal world. Uh, yeah. Okay, so I think that it is mortal world, literally in Italian. I think probably what the Hollanders are doing is wanting you to see that mortal is not... Um, that uh, the world itself can be killed, but that it's the world of mortality. It's a he, it's a slightly different use of the adjective, and they just want you to be aware of that. So yeah, but it's literally the mortal the world. mortal mondo. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, uh, uh, who from this from that mortal world has removed me is literally. Um, but tell me. What are the dark spots on this body that make those down on earth repeat their preposterous tales of Cain? What are the tales of Cain? Oh, he traveled around after he killed his brother. Yeah. With a mark on his head. Yeah. And the idea then is that after his death, he, is, he um, goes into the moon. Um, so the idea is the man in the moon is actually Cain. Huh. Um, that's according, what, according to whom? According to um, folklore. Like Not according to Dante, according to folklore. Like whose folklore? Lots of Christian folklore. Okay. I'm sure there's a note on it. Um, okay, I just wanted to know if there's any, like... No, it's why he supposedly carries... Uh, for the legend that Cain was confined to the moon and bore a bundle of thorns, see the note in Inferno 124-26. Um, the idea... It, that's in A Midsummer Night's Dream. That is that when the character who plays moon among the mechanicals um, he comes with a lantern and a thorn bush, um, and the thorn bush is because it's Cain who is tortured by thorns, and um, the mark of Cain is made by thorns. So, but we don't believe it. Even we, Dante, don't believe it. Um, that's why he calls it a preposterous tale. So um, his point is the moon is part of heaven, so it's certainly not where Cain is. Um, but tell me, what are the dark spots on this body that make those down on earth repeat their preposterous tales of Cain? Um, she smiled a little then. If the understanding of mortals errs, she said, there where the key of the senses fails in its unlocking, surely the shafts of wonder should no longer strike you, since you see that, dependent on the senses, reason's wings fall short. But tell me what you make of this yourself. So here's Dante's thinking, and I. The different shadings here are caused, I think, by bodies rare or dense. So I think that the reason, um, he's thinking of it as, as a little bit painterly, and um, he's, he's thinking that the moon is shaded differently. Um, uh, no, that's not, that's not in the Italian, though, the idea of shading. Um, what do you have for that line, for line uh, 59? And I, what seems to us diverse, appears cause, I think, by matter dense and rare. Yeah, that's right. Um, shadings is, is Hollanders, again, trying to explain something. But it's, yeah, it's, it's the diversity of what we're seeing is caused by matter dense, denser or rarer. And the idea is that at some places there's the moon. Remember, they, Dante doesn't know the moon is made of matter. Um, and Dante doesn't know that there are moon rocks and that there are holes in the moon and so on. Um, although the or that they're craters, he doesn't have the concept of a crater, um, and so what he thinks is so that some place in the moon there's more there's more <coughs> luminous substance or more light, and it's denser with light there, um, and in other parts of the moon it's less dense with that substance with the luminous substance of which the moon is made, um, and she says wrong, no doubt, but you shall see that this belief lies deep in error if you consider well the arguments that I shall lodge against it. 
The eighth sphere shows you many lights, which both in magnitude and luminosity may be seen as having different aspects. If this were caused by rare and dense alone, a single power would be in them all, here more, there less, or equally. So um, if it were simply a monochromatic moon with the only difference being the quantity of light, then it would be the same thing everywhere in the moon. Um, a single power, sometimes more, sometimes less, but the same thing throughout. Different powers must be the fruit resulting from formative principles. Um, do you have formative or formal? Formative. Formative principles. Um, but these, except for one, according to your reasoning, would be annulled. So she's basically saying, and this is going to be very important for the rest of Dante's theological thinking, that there are different that the universe is heterogeneous. It matters that the universe is heterogeneous because that's why there are differences among minds. That's why um, the great mystery for um, philosophy, for psychology, um, the great mystery is um, why you're you and in your mind and in your soul and not somebody else. And why were you born one day after not having been born for 12 billion years? Why did you suddenly come into existence? And how can there be so many other minds, all of them different from each other? That's that body without a head thing coming back. Um, and the um, answer, or not the answer, but what we can conclude from that, it's not an answer to the question, um, but it's something that we conclude is that the universe is one in, is not monistic. It's not that there's simply one thing in the universe. It's that there are many different things, that God's creation is variegated, is diverse. Its diversity is infinite. And he can produce and does produce an infinite number of different souls and an infinite number of different ways of being. And um, what we can see by looking at the moon is that not everything is made of the same thing. Um, again, all these different things that are in the universe, that's what she's pushing here in order to say what's going to be very important in Paradiso, that in paradise, everyone it's true about everyone in the universe, but in paradise, it's a good fact. Everyone is where they want to be. And the reason that's important is because if everyone were really essentially the same, but some more, some less, if the only difference were quantitative rather than qualitative, then everyone would want to be closer to God than they are rather than happy with where they are in paradise, yeah. Is that why Beatrice looks up? So, yes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So um, she's beginning to explain this by explaining that the different, that the moon is not a single luminous substance, um, some of it clumped together, some of it um, not. It's not like a cloud of moon, of, uh, it's, not like a it's not like a cloud of moonishness. Um, but there are different things within it. Um, different powers must be the fruit resulting from formative principles, but these, that is the plurality of formative principles, except for one, you'd only have one left, you would be a monist. These, except for one, according to your reasoning, would be annulled if it were only quantity rather than quality. Um, what you would have is... Um, um, a, uh, a painting or a drawing made with just one stick of charcoal, and the only thing you could vary was how much charcoal you laid down. Um, but no, Paradiso is full color. That's the analogy. What is more, if that dark of which you ask had rareness as its cause, the planet would be lacking matter in some parts. So now we would have a planet that would, um, in some places, just have gaps in it. 
wouldn't be a full planet if it had those gaps. Or else, just as fat and lean alternate in mass upon a body, this planet would alternate the pages of its volume. In some places, um, it would be thicker. In some places, thinner. All of this would take away from its perfection. So the idea of the moon's perfection is that it's a perfect sphere. Um, if it's perfect, it can't be fraying at various <coughs> places, is another way of thinking of the analogy. Which, if it's only one substance that looks different depending on where you are in it, means that some of it is thicker and some thinner. Some of it is fraying and some of it is not. Um, and uh, that's what she, that would take away from its perfection. Variety, it's part of the lesson of Paradiso to teach, does not mean imperfection. Um, this is, Leibniz is going to talk about this um, when he comes up with his theodicy, which is um, essentially. Um, that you should think of the perfection of the universe as being like the perfection of a dance. That is, if you see a dance number um, where um, a whole corps de ballet is dancing, um, then it's obvious that if it's perfectly done, um, then, every, then the whole is perfect, even though there's difference. One dancer is here, one dancer is here. One dancer is leaping, and one dancer is sliding or doing a split. And they're doing different things. And those are different things, but the combination of all those different things combines perfectly to form a perfect whole, a perfect whole made out of various parts. So too with paradise. Yeah. Was Leibniz aware that stuff crashes into each, er, into each other yeah. in the sky? OK. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, this is his analogy. Yeah. OK. Yeah. We saw in Inferno that, that, that punishment Perfected at, at a certain point. Yes. Um, yet in paradise, everything was already perfect. Yeah. Why? Um, well, paradise is perfect, but it's also changing. It's also even paradise is changing because more people are going to die, and some of them are going to go to paradise. So it's part of the motion of the spheres is also the motion of the earth, um, which is time, which won't come to an end until the day of judgment. So in the Day of Judgment, time will graduate to eternity. Um, and right now, we're still in the moving image of eternity. But it is the image of eternity that's moving. Yeah? I was wondering about that. If On the Day of Judgment, what happens to purgatory? Do people still get cleansed? Or if everything's made perfect, do they go right to heaven or right to hell? You know, I don't know. I think they would go right to heaven. I think that's the end of purgatory. But... Um, and I'm sure there's an answer to this, um, but I don't know what it is. Uh, I'll try, if, if I have time, I'll try to find out. That's a really interesting question, what happens to purgatory. Um, you know, purgatory is not in the Bible. Uh, it's Catholic doctrine, but it's, um, uh, it's post-biblical doctrine, um, which is why Luther gets rid of it. Um, so there may not be a simple answer, but I'm sure it's been thought about. <laughs> Yeah, the Trinity is also not in the Bible. Um, it's the Nicodemian Creed, I think. Um, maybe it's in, no, I don't think it is the Nicene Creed. I think it's the Nicodemian Creed. Um, all right. Um, so, were the first case true, this would be shown in the sun's eclipse. When light showed through is when it shines through any rarer medium. So, suddenly he gives us a little bit of astronomy, which is... If you look at an eclipse, what you'll see is that the moon is perfectly dark against the sun. It's not that you can see it being a little bit translucent where there's less moon, um, which, so that so you don't see the dark spots becoming bright in an eclipse, which is what you would expect. And what we've, in a way, been tutored to expect by the fact that the light doesn't shine through Dante's body but does shine through the bodies, the so-called bodies of the other dead. Um, so... The fact that the moon um, isn't, uh, you, can't, you can't hold the moon up against the sun and see where it's rarer by seeing different quantities of light, that shows the moon really is solid. Um, dark and light, but the darkness isn't the absence of substance. If it were, you could see right through the moon. So that's a pretty cool astronomical argument given to you in the size of half a tweet. Um, 
but such is not the case. Therefore, let us consider your other argument. And if I show that to be false, then your opinion will be proven wrong. If this rarer substance does not go all the way, there must be a, a point at which its denser opposite would not allow the light to pass on through, and thus a ray of light would be thrown back, just as color is reflected from the glass by the hidden layer of lead that lies beneath. Now you'll object the ray shows dark there more than in the other parts because it is reflected from a farther source. From this objection, an experiment, should you ever try it, may set you free. Experiment the source that feeds the stream of all your arts. Take three mirrors, placing two at equal distance from you, letting the third from farther off also meet your eyes between the other two. Still turn to them, have someone set well back of you a light that's shining out returns its bright reflection from all three. Although the light seen farthest off seems smaller in its size, still you will observe that it must shine with equal brightness. Now substantial forms of snow, if struck by warming rays, is then deprived both of its former color and its cold. I shall now reshape your intellect, thus deprived, with a light so vibrant that your mind will clip, quiver at the sight. Beneath the heaven of divine repose revolves the body and his power resides, the being of all things contained in it. The next heaven, which holds so many sights, distributes it among distributes its being among various forms contained in it and yet distinct from it, here you should be thinking about the way the sins worked in purgatory. That is, each heaven is a kind of subsumption of the heavens below it. Or each, each lower heaven is a projection of parts of the, of the more complete heaven above it. All the other spheres in varying ways direct their distinctive qualities to their own purpose and influence. Um... I guess let's stop there and just say that, so what he's basically saying, which is right, is that if you hold light up against a mirror or against several mirrors, um, the light may be smaller in the mirror that's far, farther away, but the fact is that it shines back um, just as much as the other two do. And if you take into account its distance, you can see, um, you can judge, we're in, in a position to judge that its absolute magnitude is the same. Um, in the same way, if the moon were um, darker because of holes in it or places where the light um, can't, um, can't go, that light would have to go somewhere, um, or it would have to reflect back to us. Um, since it doesn't reflect back to us, the only answer can be that it's, the way we would now put it, a substance of a different color. Um, so not a hole in the moon. Um, not um, a different um, uh, topography in the moon, but a substance of a different color. Um, and so that briefly is the argument, but the reason for the argument is to say that all these differences, again, he's a little bit anticipating Newton's idea of white light. We talked about this before as, as um, all the colors of the spectrum combined. That's going to be the white light of the Empyrean, of the highest heaven and all the spheres below it um, will contain decompositions of that light, but it's still the light of paradise, um, parts of the light of paradise. So again, as with the dance, so with the rainbow or with the prism. Um, not that Dante knows that white light is prismatic, but it's a good illustration. So with the rainbow or prism, which is that um, light is made up of different colors, but the fact that differences combine to produce the purity of white light doesn't mean that any of these colors is imperfect or that the difference itself is imperfect. You can't say, oh, red, um, why don't I get to be blue? I'm red, but why don't I get to be blue? No fair. Being red is as important and as much a part of perfection as being blue is. When, um, and both combine to produce this perfection that we call white light. But white light isn't a single thing. It's a various thing. It's a variegated thing with all that variegation fit together perfectly. Or again, think of a mosaic um, is, another, is, a, is a completely different way of thinking about this. The whole is a perfect picture. Each part of it is different from every other part. Each, each stone is a different color and a different shape from every other stone. Um, so you can't say, well, one stone, you know, which is the most perfect stone in this mosaic, is a question that makes no sense. There is no perfect stone, or they're all perfect. Why are they all perfect? Because they're part of this perfect mosaic, this perfect picture. That's how Dante is, or that's what Beatrice is essentially 
explaining to Dante. So the moon is a mosaic, might be a way of putting it. It's a mosaic of different um, parts of the perfection of the spheres. Okay, but I do, let's go, do we have time for both? I think we barely do. So we were looking at the Eliot, um, and um, I'm glad you guys want to get stuck in Paradiso, though. Um, but we're looking at the Eliot, the four quartets, um, and the speaker um, sees this familiar compound ghost and says, and, and so I assumed a double part, he says, and cried and heard another's voice cry, what are you here, which we remembered was Bruno Latini, although we were not. I was still the same, knowing myself, yet being someone other, and he a face still forming, yet the words sufficed to compel the recognition they preceded. So that's a very Dantesque idea. Yeah? I have mine in my I, I have a couple of copies. Um, anyone else? I need a copy for myself. So... Um, one more share if you can uh, so the words suffice to compel the recognition they preceded um, so simply but so that's again in a way what I was saying before about writing as discovery of what it is you will have written um, the words sufficed um, my saying, what are you here? Those suffice, just those words, compelled the recognition they preceded. He doesn't recognize the other person and then say, oh, you're here, but rather the words, I, rec I am going to recognize this person, and that compels the recognition. Um, and so, compliant to the common wind, too strange to each other for misunderstanding. Another great line. Too strange to each other for misunderstanding. In concord at this intersection time of meeting nowhere, no before and after, we trod the pavement in a dead patrol. Remember this is while London is under attack um, by bombs. I said, the wonder that I feel is easy, yet ease is cause of wonder. Therefore speak I may not comprehend, may not remember, and he, and that's a very Dantesque, and he. Um, that's how Dante is always giving you. The Hollanders tend to expand it, but the way um, the way speech is, is um, alternates in Dante is, and I, colon, colon, and he, colon, quote. And he, I am not eager to rehearse my thoughts and theory which you have forgotten, these things have served their purpose, let them be. So think of this as Dante speaking. Um, not only Dante, he's a compound ghost, but largely Dante. So I'm not going to tell you again what you've forgotten from your reading of the Divine Comedy. So with your own, and pray they be forgiven by others, as I pray you to forgive both bad and good. Last season's fruit is eaten, and the full-fed beast shall kick the empty pail. For last year's words belong to last year's language and next year's words await another voice. But as the passage now presents no hindrance to the spirit unappeased and peregrine that is a pilgrim spirit, between two worlds become much like each other. That is the world of hell in this case and our world. So I found words I never thought to speak in streets I never thought I should revisit when I left my body on a distant shore. So what is that alluding to? when I left my body on a distant shore? Virgil. To Virgil. Yeah, when Dante says, why do I cast a shadow? So now it's as though Dante is Virgil to Eliot as Dante. It's a continuation of this kind of terza each poet being the introducer and leader of the next, just as the middle line <laughs> of the stanza introduces and leads the next stanza. Since our concern was speech, and speech impelled us to purify the dialect of the tribe, that's a line from Mallarmé, um, and urge the mind to aftersight and foresight, let me disclose the gifts reserved for age. 
to set a crown upon your lifetime's effort. So here's what will happen in old age. First, the cold friction of expiring sense without enchantment, offering no promise but bitter tastelessness of shadow fruit as body and soul begin to fall asunder. Second, the conscious impotence of rage at human folly and the laceration of laughter at what ceases to amuse. And last, the rending pain of reenactment. So there again you're getting... Um, that idea of in the future I will reenact what is now happening to me. And last, the rending pain of reenactment of all that you have done and been, the shame of things ill done and done to others' harm, which once you took for exercise of virtue, then fool's approval stings and honor stains. From wrong to wrong, the exasperated spirit proceeds unless restored by that refining fire where you must move in measure like a dancer. So that refining fire is some kind of purgatorial refinement, but it's also the fire where you move in measure like a dancer. I'm just going to say this, is poetry, is writing this out as a poem, is thinking it through as a poem. The day was breaking. In the disfigured street he left me with a kind of valediction and faded on the blowing of the horn. Anyone know what that's an allusion to, faded on the blowing of the horn? Um, it's another purgatorial allusion, but not to Dante. It faded on the crowing of the cock. The ghost in Hamlet. Um, when Horatio and Marcellus and Bernardo see the ghost, suddenly it fades on the crowing of the cock. Okay, go to the Shelley. Uh, this is Matilda gathering flowers. Shelley is the best writer of Terzarima in English. Um, this is the page that has Ovid on the top left. Um, Am I missing part of this? No, this works. This works. So um, this is uh, Canto 28. You'll have to look on. Oh, I have another. I have a part. I have part one. Canto 28, uh, Purgatorio. Um, okay. Um, so notice how well Shelley's language, how great Shelley's language is. And just so you can look at um, the Hollanders who do a pretty good job with this, um, they begin it as, um, over here, yes. Eager to explore, I'll just read you their first person. Eager to explore the sacred forest boundaries and its depth, now that its thick and ver verdant foliage had softened the new day's glare before my eyes, <coughs> I left the bank without delay and wandered slowly through the countryside and filled the air that filled the air around with fragrance. Um, Shelley's translation is actually a lot closer to the Italian word order and the Italian concision. Um, the Hollanders are being very accurate but Shelley, being Shelley, one of the um, greatest of English poets, is able to follow Dante much more closely while also writing this amazing Terzarima. And earnest to explore. Unclear on the concept. And earnest to explore within, around the divine wood, whose thick green living woof tempered the young day to the sight. I wound up the green slope beneath the forest roof with slow, soft steps, leaving the mountains steep, and sought those inmost labyrinths, motion-proof against the air, that in that stillness deep and solemn struck upon my forehead bare, the slow, soft stroke of a continuous, this is a manuscript, so he hadn't figured out the rhyme there, in which the something leaves, trembling, were all bent towards that part where earliest the sacred hill obscures the morning air. Yet were they not so shaken from the rest but that the birds perched on the utmost spray incessantly renewing their blithe quest with perfect joy received the early day, singing within the glancing leaves whose sound kept a low burden to their roundelay, such as from bough to bough gathers around the pine forest on bleak Kiasi's shore when Aeolus Shiriko has unbound, my slow steps had already borne me o'er such space within the antique wood that I perceived not where I entered any more. When lo, a stream whose little waves went by, bending towards the left through grass that grew upon its bank, impeded suddenly my going on, 
Water of purest hue on earth would appear turbid and impure compared with this, whose unconcealing dew, dark, dark, yet clear, moved under the obscure eternal shades, whose interwoven looms the rays of moon or sunlight ne'er endure. I move not with my foot, but mid the glooms, pierced with my charmed eye, contemplating the mighty multitude of fresh made blooms which starred that night, when, even as a thing that suddenly for blank astonishment charms every sense and makes all thought take wing, a solitary woman, and she went singing and gathering flower after flower with which her way was painted and besprent. Bright lady, who, if looks had ever power to bear true witness of the heart within, dost bask under the beams of love, come lower towards this bank. I prithee let me win this much of thee to come, that I may hear thy song like proserpine in Anna's glen, thou seemest to my fancy, singing here and gathering flowers, as that fair maiden, when she lost the spring, in Ceres her more dear. So there again, you're getting um, the story that we already looked at in Ovid and Milton of Proserpine gathering flowers. Dante um, tells that story also. Shelley's version is um, strongly influenced by Milton's. That is, if you think about the intertwining of um, the literary history here, um, Dante is channeling Ovid Milton is also channeling Ovid, but with Dante in mind. Shelley is translating Dante, but Shelley has, basically has Paradise Lost memorized. His mind is always full of Paradise Lost. Um, his language is more influenced by Paradise Lost than by any other poet. Um, so what you have here is, she you could say, is Shelley doing a Miltonic translation of Dante in Dante's form, which is Terzarima. Um, at any rate, this is not, Shelley's greatest poem is his last unfinished poem, The Triumph of Life, which is um, an amazing Terzarima <coughs> narrative. Um, but you get some hint of what Dante sounds like as great poetry in the form that he's written it in um, by looking at Shelley's translation. Um, all righty, keep reading. <laughs> And um, have a good weekend. I have papers for most of you and quizzes and all that other good stuff. Um, the next quiz is Friday, right? Sorry? The next quiz is Friday? Yes. The what? Next, next quiz. quiz. Oh.